Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. The evening and the morning takes place around the year 1000. It's the end of the Dark Ages and the beginning of the Middle Ages. And what we're seeing is a conflict between people who want England to be ruled by law and people who prefer the old ways. So this is the point at which England begins to change and the main drama of the story comes in conflict about that change. After the Pillars of the Earth, I wrote two books which took place in the same town, Kingsbridge, in later periods of history. The evening and the morning takes place in Kingsbridge at an earlier period of history. The richest source of information about this period of history is uh, what we call the Bayou Tapestry, which is a sort of enormous comic strip embroidered on linen showing uh, the story of England and Normandy and how the Normans came to be the rulers of England. And the great thing about the Bayou Tapestry is the details of everyday life. It's a time when horses were terribly important and a lot of people go places on horseback. So it's important to know what it was like. They didn't have docks. You wanted to go on board a ship. You hitched up the skirts of your tunic around your waist and you walked through the shallow water. And in my story, people go between England and Normandy quite a lot. So this depiction is helpful to me. If you want to do historical novels, you've got to get this stuff right. Now, architecture excites me because it tells of a way of life, you see. We're at Glastonbury Abbey. There has been a monastery here since the first century AD, and two of my characters visited at different times. Edgar wants to build a canal, and he wants to see how they've done it. Aldrin comes here. He is a monk. He comes here to beg a gift. His little monastery is broke, and he thinks that if he can get the relics of a saint, it will attract pilgrims, and they will make money out of the pilgrims. I won't tell you whether he gets it. You have to read the book. The evening and the morning certainly has some strong female characters, as my books always do. When we first meet Ragnar in France, she's already a young woman of importance. She rules over extensive lands, she acts as a judge, but she falls in love with an Anglo-Saxon chieftain, and she goes to England to marry him. She finds that England is relatively lawless, and that her husband's family is violent and completely ruthless. But she doesn't just accept this. She cultivates her own allies, she builds her own power base, and she fights back. Hello. Wow. One of my characters is a boat builder, Edgar, who is really the hero of the story. The best boats at the time were those of the Vikings. Happily, there is in Oslo a wonderful museum called the Viking Ship Museum. They have reconstructed the warships 
in which the Vikings came from Denmark and Norway to raid southern England. When they attacked towns and villages, they would steal anything valuable that they could carry away, like silver ornaments from the church. They also took the young men and women as slaves. The worst thing you could see would be five or six of those damn Viking ships approaching up the river or approaching the beach of your town. Then you knew you were in for hell on earth. In the opening of my story, the young hero, Edgar, is on the beach at dawn and coming towards him. This is what he sees with a dragon's head right at the front. And, of course, it's a completely terrifying sight. So here is a dragon's head. Gosh, the carving is extraordinary, isn't it? The look, the grandeur, and the grace of those ships is really a very important image for this book. For the cover of The Evening and the Morning, for the first time, I've started working with an artist before the book is finished. And so I took Darren Cook, who is the designer, who's worked on um, the covers of my books now for several years. And I took him with me to Oslo because I wanted him to see the helmets and the carving, because I knew that these things would inspire him. When you see runic letter forms, they locate a piece in history so specifically. A lot of the characters are very similar to an M, a runic M is very similar to an M that we would use today. So there's a really good opportunity here to create a branded look for the title, which is inspired by the runic alphabet. By the time the book is finished, we will have a very vivid idea of what the cover should look like all over the world. We're in the east of England, not far from the cathedral city of Lincoln. I was very pleased to find Dave Greenhalgh. He's a, an expert in ancient coins, and he's also a very practical guy, and he has a forge, and he actually makes replica coins in the way that they were made in Anglo-Saxon times. Part of the plot of the evening and the morning is that somebody's forging silver pennies, the only money in Anglo-Saxon England. That can go in. This is how you make the fire hotter. And all this done with no electricity. Yep. They take a pound of silver penny, melt it down, mix it with a pound of copper, and make twice as many pennies as they had before. Double your money. Oof. If you just tried to imagine this, you would have no idea. A novel is full of physical details of houses and churches and landscapes. All emotional stuff is based on physical description, and all physical description ought to have emotional weight. You've got to make it real in the reader's mind. You've got to make the reader have an emotional reaction to this story. It's a kind of enchantment. I'm in this book, and I really care more about what's going to happen in the next chapter of this book than what's going to happen to me tomorrow. That's a magic spell, and it's actually, in the end, it's the only thing that matters. Very nice, very nice video, Ken. And I know that you do one of those um, 
for every release. And I know that you do them as you go along at the beginning of the research process. So it's kind of nostalgic, that one, because you're standing next to people and um, no mask, no distancing. So before we talk about the book, this is a question I've been asking all my writer friends on all these Zooms. Um, I don't want to know about medical stuff or your political opinions, but just as an artist, how has the isolation and the distancing been for you? It hasn't affected my life as an artist at all, as far as I can see, because uh, I do all day, I do exactly the same as I have done for the last 45 years. Uh, I sit uh, at a keyboard. Um, it, of course, it was a typewriter when I started. Now it's a keyboard. And when I started, the room wasn't quite as nice as this one. But basically, I sit here all day and write. Uh, it, uh, and, but of course, my social life is completely wrecked. Um, I'm a lover of the theatre. Uh, and I haven't been to the theatre since March. And you know, my, I, the, I think the greatest invention of the human race is the restaurant because you sit around a table talking to your friends and people bring you bottles of wine and plates of food. Now, it's the best thing ever. And, of course, now we can't do that. Uh, so that's So I miss that, and most of all, I miss my family. You know, Lee, that I've got children and grandchildren in Southern California, and, of course, I can't go and see them. So uh, th that's the big difference. But as an artist, um, I'm, I spend all day in my imaginary world. And in my imaginary world, which is the 11th century, the, there's no lockdown. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, you get a, a lot of different responses from that, though. I've heard from people that are just uh, can't focus, can't concentrate, uh, are very distracted. Um, other people are incredibly productive. I suppose it depends on how well you can compartmentalize the two things, but I'm exactly the same that I feel it hasn't made any practical difference at all, other than actually removing some of the guilt I feel when I don't really want to go and do something <laughs> because I can't. <clears throat> but I, I mean, I do, I agree with you about the theater. I mean, that is just uh, sad. Um, you know, I'm back in New York this week from being out west, and it's like a ghost town. Um, it feels like Thanksgiving Day here. No, no traffic, no people, nothing happening. Very strange feeling. But for a writer, not all that strange, because as you say, we we spend our time, in your case, in the 11th century. And I, that is so interesting to me, because you started out, I mean, you've always been historical. Um, World War II. Uh, initially, and um, but you seem to have found your century or your period in in the in the medieval time. Uh, why would that be? I mean, why leap back a thousand years instead of just a hundred years? Well, you're right. I'm I'm very comfortable in this period, uh, and I think it's because there 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 are lots of opportunities for for good stories for dramatic events. Um, and I think part of the attraction is that uh, we know that life in the Middle Ages was very hard. They were hungry, they were cold, there was a lot of violence, there was no justice. Uh, the, um, uh, the nights were long. And, um, uh, and, but we, and there was no medicine. We 
reading about this, uh, sitting in our heated houses and apartments uh, on a comfortable chair, quite possibly with a nice glass of wine and something good to eat beside us. And so we enter into this dreadful world of the Middle Ages, and it makes us appreciate all the more the everyday comforts of the 21st century. Yeah, and it, I think we, we, we have a sort of instinctive uh, desire to imagine that, yeah, it, it, was, it was a thousand years ago, but it was kind of the same, just older and less sophisticated. Um, even back to the Tudor period, people imagine that. But the politics, the structure of society, um, the legal system that we take for granted and we feel we have a sort of pretty instinctive knowledge of the boundaries and our rights and our privileges and so on, um, didn't exist at all. And therefore, the whole bearing of your life was utterly different in a way that we couldn't recognise now. I think that's absolutely right, and I'm very interested. And, and most of my stories are about how freedom was achieved. Uh, it seems to me an extraordinary phenomenon. The last book, um, A Column of Fire, was about religious freedom. And it seems to me extraordinary because for most of history, nobody's been free. And in the world today, it's actually a minority of people who actually are free. So it's a peculiar uh, circumstance for human beings. And um, I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by the question, how did we get here? How did we get to be so lucky? What happened that, that a, a, a part, a relatively small part of the modern civilized globe uh, actually got to be free and, and, by the way, prosperous as well? And the, the battles, I'm interested in the battles that people fought. The suffragettes, for example, fighting for rights for women, the right to vote for women. And they fought a political battle. Nobody wanted them to have the vote. Obviously, the men were in power, and the men didn't. Nobody ever wants to share power, really. Uh, and yet, the suffragettes fought that political battle, and boy, they won. And I just thought that was a particular, you know, that kind of thing is fascinating, and it's a great story. It sure is. <clears throat> we got a question from the audience that was actually one of the questions I was going to uh, ask. Um, Talking about you and me, when you're each in the middle of writing a book, do you share ideas with each other or is the process entirely solo? I think my question was, how, you and I sort of bumped up, we were doing various things over the span of the last couple of years when this book was um, taking shape. And I'm always fascinated by authors either do or do not want to talk about their work in progress. Um, some people think it's like a jinx if they talk about it, it'll ruin it or it's not finished yet so they can't really see the value in it. Some people refuse to talk, other people will. You know, the natural question, you know, if we bump into each other, I say, what are you working on? Um, and I remember we had a fascinating lunch in New York where the first, that was the first I heard of this book, um, the evening and the morning. and. Um, how did you feel about having to, you know, being pestered for comment about it at that stage? Is it something you like or something you avoid? I don't mind that at all. Um, um, the publishers don't like you to talk 
about um, a book too early um, because it, it draws in public because it draws attention away from the book they're selling. But apart from that, uh, I'm perfectly happy to, to talk about where I am with the book. I mean, especially to people who understand, you know, people who know that what I say about the book today all, could all change in the next six months and the book could be unrecognizable by the time I've finished it. But you understand that. So I would always be happy to talk about you. And by the way, I would pinch any ideas I liked from a Reacher novel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that is, it's an honorable thing, you know, there is no such thing as invention, it's all borrowing, and um, uh, I know that I've nicked a lot of, uh, I feel terribly guilty, actually, because in my third book, I think, I put in a sentence that people thought was wonderful, but I stole it from Clive James, the, do you remember the TV critic? I certainly do, yeah. Yeah. But uh, well, anyway. it's certainly a, a very good person to steal phrases from. It was a terrific. Yeah, yeah. a very interesting guy, actually. The, the, I don't know if you have the same sensation, but in my lifetime, the, the turnaround of Australia has been remarkable in that, you know, when I was a kid, we would look at it as this very uh, brutal, unsophisticated thing, and we were fascinated by the distances and going to school on the radio and the flying doctor and all that kind of stuff. But it was a curiosity. But over our lifetimes, it's become a very cool place, a really um, leading international country because of people like Clive James and Jermaine Greer, it has to be said. And, uh, and their television industry, I think, is what really broke it through. I, I love the way they use the English language. They have some wonderful phrases. Don't come the raw prawn. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, a cultural cringe. Uh, what, what's the oh, oh, budgie smugglers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, terrific, terrifically expressive. Yeah, the, the English language as a whole being so worldwide now, um, it's a total two way street. We're learning from everybody else at this point about how about phrase making, that's for sure. Uh, I love the American usages as well. You know, years ago, before the 2008 crash, there were these mortgages you could get where you did not have to supply any documentation at all about your income. And they had some technical name, but in public parlance, they were called liar loans, <laughs> which kind of sums it up. And I think we're still paying the price for it. Yes, yes, indeed. In the long run, it wasn't very funny, was it? But it wasn't. the phrase is good. Anyway, back to the book. Um, well, the book set against your career, because this is something that I know we've talked about it before, and I'm always endlessly fascinated. You have a kind of restlessness about where you want to go. Um, you know, for a, a, a long career, it's all over the map. Um, I, I remember for no good reason, really, The Third Twin, which was in the middle of the 90s. I loved that book. And that was an absolute straight up techno thriller about, you know, cloning DNA and all that kind of stuff. How does a guy who writes that then also write about the Anglo-Saxon and Norman era a thousand years ago and so even a hundred years ago? Um, the restlessness is something that, that fascinates me. Um, well, I, uh, in the case of the third twin, um, I went to Baltimore and uh, I interviewed uh, detectives. 
Uh, and in particular, because of the central crime in that story, I interviewed sexual offences detectives. And, um, you know, it's if, you've, if you're doing a story that has anything to do with the police, it's great. It's a great... It's a great excuse to talk to some of some of the really most interesting per- people anywhere. But the process, so the process, you know, uh, um, uh, doing something about the 11th century, then I, I start researching the 11th century. And, the, and in the case of the third twin, I was, I was res- re- researching crime in Baltimore. And it, it felt to me like a very similar process. Now, of course, the outcome, the result looks... Uh, the results look like two wildly different novels to the reader, but for me, creating them, they don't really feel that different. And that's why it isn't, for me, it isn't really the period. It's the, it's the strength of the story that I've got in my head, you know, and if I, if I, if I thought of a good story uh, to set in the time of the Roman Empire, then I would just do it. I don't, I'm not particularly attracted to the Roman Empire because it's sort of been overdone. But if I had a good enough story, then that's what I'd do. So um, it, it's, and of course, uh, I got to say that, um, that uh, uh, certainly um, it's much wiser to do what you've done and continue to create a fantastic central character and just keep on writing about him because people just love it more and more. I was never able to do that. I did, you know, before I wrote Eye of the Needle, I wrote wrote quite a lot of unsuccessful novels. They were published but weren't bestsellers. And in some of them, I did have series characters. (laughs) They just weren't good enough. The other thing, I mean, it's a bit of inside baseball, but, um, you know, this is a job as, and it is a business both for us as writers and, of course, the publishers. And, you know, we feed our families this way and we, uh, and for a person like you over decades, the publisher comes to rely on you. You know, they that's your week. Uh, you pay the rent for the final quarter of the year, and you know, any money they make out of somebody else is gravy, but you're an essential part of their platform. So, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall when Ken Follett, the author of a string of, um, of exciting but more or less contemporary thrillers, comes up with the idea for Pillars of the Earth. Um, now, I know you've told me that there was no trepidation whatsoever, but secretly there must have been, but uh, sort of on your part and the publisher's part, because this was a dramatic departure from what might be considered contemporary taste. And their, one of their flagship authors was taking this enormous risk. There must have been a certain amount of lip biting and, um, and uh, squirming going on, because it's... It, it just seemed to me a a risk, you know, for everybody concerned, including you. Well, it was certainly seen that way by some of my publishers. My feeling was that that there was definitely a good popular novel to be written about the building of a medieval cathedral. I wasn't that sure that I could write it because I had never I had never tried anything, never tried anything that long before. Uh, so I, that would have been my doubt. I didn't, uh, 
but I basically felt that a good story could be made out of it. Your, my publishers, one of my publishers, um, uh, got my wife Barbara in a corner and and said, "You've got to stop him writing this book; it will ru ruin his career." I seem I seem to have heard that. I've seemed to have heard actors telling stories about somebody who said it's going to ruin his career and of course in the story it always turns out to be the best thing he ever did uh, there are probably plenty of times when somebody says it's going to ruin your career and they're right <laughs> and it does ruin somebody's career you know um but uh, uh uh i mean all of the publishers all of the publishers had misgivings uh, and um, many of them expressed their misgivings, but in the end, to their credit, they all said, Ken, if you're convinced, then that's what you want to do. And I knew that I wanted to write a popular novel. Some of them, I think, were a bit afraid that I was I was going to be the clown playing Hamlet and I would write uh, I would write the kind of difficult book that um, might win the Booker Prize. And uh, that was never in my head. I had had then and have now no interest in writing that kind of book at all and I, I didn't want to I didn't want to even try it uh, but but they sort of had they weren't sure whether to believe me when I said that and they weren't quite sure that uh, I would, was going to be able to do what I promised so yes it was a difficult moment for them and frankly I sympathize I mean a publisher I've been a publisher's editor myself and a publisher produces you know several dozen or maybe several hundred new products a year and basically has very little idea of how they're going to sell. And so they do, they love people who can have a success time and time again, because as you say, it pays the rent. It gives them a sense of security. They can put some numbers in their financial forecast for the year that they've got some reason to rely on. And as you say, when one of their when one of their um, re most reliable people suddenly comes up with a wacky idea, they go, "Oh God, what now?" <laughs> but we got away with it. We got yes, away with you it. Did. You totally got away with it. And um, I mean, I don't know the numbers, but I'm guessing even more massive than the previous sales. I mean, it's a worldwide institution now. That um, that trilogy. And uh, you and I toured Europe um, last year, and it astonished me how much affection there was for those books around, you know, foreign countries, people that have really got nothing to do with medieval Britain, people that have no idea about it, but they loved it. And I'm, I can only assume that it's obviously the quality of the storytelling, but the human characters uh, uh, at its center that are timeless in in a very literal way i think that's true i don't think people fundamentally change very much over hundreds of years or maybe even thousands of years people in the middle ages were concerned about many of the same things that we're concerned about today they were concerned for example about love and marriage and the family they were concerned about work and money uh, and they were worried about things like war and violence. And if you write about those things, if you write about things that are that close to people's hearts, as you and I both do, and if you do it well, then people will like the story because they will be able to identify with the character and they'll get the whole thing. For you, was there, I mean, you've gone back uh, a little bit um, before 
the um, the rest of the Kingsbridge trilogy to what might be for you a fairly sensitive era because for the people that around the world who who don't know it to recap very briefly the history of the British Isles is that it was populated by the Celts Celtic people who who were then invaded by the Anglo-Saxons who were then invaded by the Normans and so the Celts were at the bottom of the pile and they got pushed west into Wales and southwest into Cornwall and across the English Channel into Brittany, just pushed out by the pressure of the Anglo-Saxons. And you are ethnically a Celt. Yeah. Uh, you come from Wales, which is different than me. I, I am probably, I mean, I have no idea. I, I once had a dog with a longer pedigree than I can trace mine. <laughs> but, but possibly, um, I'm possibly a Norman, that, a Viking that went to Normandy and then invaded possibly with William and uh, then went to Scotland and then went to Ireland as a Scotch-Irish person. So I was one of the ones who was pushing out the people that pushed you out. And, and the Celts have had a really rough deal um, out, out of that period of history. Did you feel any particular sympathy with them because you're from Wales? Uh, to tell you the truth, not, not particularly. Um, there is a, a, a Welsh character who's a slave, and I feel tremendous empathy, tremendous sympathy for her because she's a slave. But um, I, it's, it's not um, uh, particularly... You know, I don't have strong feelings about the way the Welsh were treated as Welsh. It was, um, and the Scots, and as you say, and the Irish were also treated the same way by the Anglo-Saxons. And then along came the Normans and did the same to the Anglo-Saxons. So, I mean, it, it, it sort of went round and round. And it's all far too long ago, as far as I'm concerned, for me to feel any kind of indignation uh, about the way my ancestors were treated. Um, I feel... I feel uh, I have strong feelings about the more recent history of Wales. Um, and, and one of my grandfathers was a coal miner as a teenager, started at the age of 13. And, and we all knew that in the family when I was a boy. Grand, I mean, he, he became a, a successful shopkeeper, but he, uh, Grandpa Evans had started his working life down the pit. Uh, and uh, that I, th I find that very moving. In fact, it's, it's the opening of Fall of Giants, which is the first book in the Century Trilogy. And um, that what happens in that first chapter is very much based on what happened to my grandfather at the age of 13. So I have that empathy with, with Wales in recent history. And, you know, and I, I love the fact that Welsh people can sing. I love, I love, um, uh, I love the sound of people singing unaccompanied. And my mother's earliest memory... Uh, when she was a little girl, uh, lying in bed early in the morning before it was time to get up, she would hear the night shift coming up from the pit and the men would sing as they walked home. And in my mother's memory, and it's probably true, they sang beautifully. And it is true that a lot of people in Wales can sing really well. And I just thought that, you know, it, it's, the, it's about the only thing I know about my mother as, as a, a little girl. Uh, and that notion that she lay there and heard the men singing as they came up from the pit, I thought was really a rather, rather lovely image. It is. That's a, actually a very beautiful image. And 
And you're right, it's one of the genetic mysteries of life. Why are the Welsh such great singers? Because we're not going to see it this year because of distancing, but at a Welsh rugby match or something like that, where you have 60,000 Welshmen in a stadium singing uh, the hymns before the game, that is literally one of the most fabulous sounds you'll ever hear. And I, I, anybody in the audience, as soon as they've been online and, and bought the evening in the morning, while you're there, look for a CD of Welsh male voice choirs. It is one of the most gorgeous sounds in the world and um, thoroughly to be recommended. But my wife will be disappointed. My wife is an American, as you know, from, from New York, but she loves European history and especially medieval history. And she's permanently outraged at the treatment of the Celtic people, um, you know, over a thousand years ago. So she, she'd want you to be a bit more stirred up. Question from the audience here asking, are there political lessons in from a thousand years ago that could apply today? We've sort of touched on that about the struggle for freedom and organization and so on, but is there anything specific that, that we could learn from that era? The particular issue in the evening and the morning is justice, and several people in the story seek justice from the courts uh, and don't get it. Uh, and at this point in English history, people were beginning to demand that the law be objective and that the, and that the nobility should not be above the law but should be subject to the law, just like everybody else. This had not become a reality and did not become a reality for some time afterwards. But I like the notion that people were beginning to want it. Um, and what we call the rule of law, the, the idea that the law is above the government, above the president, above the king, is an, a key part of our democracy, a key part of our freedom, uh, something that we took for granted for hundreds of years. Uh, and now it's under attack. Uh, now, I didn't sort of... This isn't why it's the theme. Uh, it, it, that's, that's either a coincidence or it, it, perhaps more likely some sense of what was happening in the world around it filtered into my imagination when I was dreaming up the story. But I didn't consciously say I'm going to write a book about the rule of law. I never really start like that. Um, but, but as I mentioned earlier, I like those those conflicts in which some people are fighting for their freedom appeal to me as stories. And so there is a theme about justice in the evening, and the morning, which turns out unfortunately to be very relevant to what's happening in the world today. And you think of the government of Poland, which is trying to take control of the judiciary at the moment. They want the, the Supreme court in Poland to be basically under their control. And we have a newspaper in this country, the, the Daily Mail, that's always calling judges unelected. Unelected. Of course, they're unelected. That's the point. Yeah. They're different from the elected government. And they, they interpret the law. They don't make the law. Um, but it's, it's dismaying to find the principle of the rule of law under attack in, in society today. It's under attack in the United States. Very um, current issue in the United States with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, and we don't know what's going to happen about that so the issue that issue turns out to be a lot more alive than I ever anticipated and to tell you the truth I could wish that it wasn't so alive 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like we're doomed to repeat the same struggles over and over again because we forget. And that is something that, uh, or we're never told, you know, do we study history enough? What What was your background in, in was it just regular school stuff and then you uh, taught yourself the rest? Or, um, I mean, where did you get this knowledge and appetite for history? Well, the truth is that in school, I hated history. I thought it was boring. Uh, and I didn't get interested. At university, I studied philosophy. Uh, and But when I started writing spy stories in my 20s, uh, it, it occurred to me that the, that the spy's struggle would be a lot more interesting and admirable if he was fighting for for something that could alter the course of a battle or a war. And that is, of course, what that's what spies are supposed to do. They're not just supposed to get involved in fights and seduce women. They're actually supposed to discover intelligence, which will help the army to fight its next battle. And so I started to read military history, looking for topics uh, that I could seize on and and weave a spy novel around, so that, but so that the reader would know that what this spy is doing is going to affect uh, the outcome of World War II or the Russian Revolution or a particular battle, and that's so I got interested in history that way, found it interesting, really loved it, used quite a lot of real history in my early spy stories. Uh, and um, but at the same time, I was looking at cathedrals. I was um, uh, fascinated by their size and their beauty and their history. It's a little bit. Um, I mean, the personal side of it is a little bit paradoxical because I was raised in uh, a very religious family, but very um, puritanical. And so our churches had no decoration. There weren't even pictures of Jesus in the church. Um, and they, we, didn't need, we didn't call them churches. We called them halls. We went to the, we went to the gospel hall, not to church. Uh, and, and then I rejected my parents' religion and I became an atheist, as I still am. And then I wrote a novel about building a cathedral. Now, there's something weird about that, that sequence of events, isn't there? But anyway, that's what happened. And um, I began to study the history of cathedrals, I, be, I was interested in the people who built the cathedrals. And, and two questions, uh, why did they build the cathedrals and how? Yeah. And those questions occur to most people who ever look at a cathedral for more than two minutes. Here it is, it's huge, it cost a fortune, it took decades to build sometimes more than a century uh, why did they want one of these why did medieval people say that's what we need there are people who slept on the floor and lived in wooden houses suddenly said what we want is an enormous church that will yeah. take a hundred years to build and will cost more money than any of us will make in 10 lifetimes um and that um uh, the answer to those questions is is a thousand page novel. I mean, so there's no simple answer, and yeah, the only yeah. way you, the only way you can answer yeah. it is write a long novel. I mean, the how alone, because they were such fundamentally unfeasible structures. 
because we look at them now and there's, they're big and grand now, but they're surrounded by other buildings that are relatively big and grand. But we have to remember back then, they were surrounded by nothing except mud huts and, and straw mats and, and wooden shacks. Almost certainly nothing that was more than one story tall. And uh, amidst all of that, it, these immense stone structures that were as difficult to imagine building as, for instance, the pyramids in Egypt or the pyramids in Mexico um, or Stonehenge. I mean, how were these things done? It was that that part of the story absolutely fascinates me is, I mean, how do you get a 20 ton block of stone 100 feet in the air to put it in a column? It, it's it, it's With great like, difficulties. It's like a huge devotion. Yes, and all of that, of course, and and although you've with with that kind of thing, you've got to be careful not to overdo it. But to a certain extent, some uh, not too lengthy explanations of how these miracles were performed uh, uh, were part of the appeal of the pillars of the earth. I think um, simply because you know that. Um, there's a rule that you shouldn't give the reader any information and, until he's 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 wondering about it, until he's asking himself the question. Uh, but I think um, a lot of readers will have asked themselves some of these questions when they've looked at cathedrals. How the heck was that done? Yeah. Uh, and so um, they're interested in a, a, a limited amount. As I say, you can't overdo it, but a limited amount of technical ex explanation of how those things were actually done. I love I love books where you learn something along the way um, and, you know, not being beaten over the head with education with a capital e, e, but you just learn how something is done or you you put together a connection and you say, oh, yeah, yeah, now I see it. I love books like that. So this sort of impinges on another audience question we've got. Do you feel your most acclaimed novels are indeed your best? which I think is a lovely question because we all respond differently to books. And I mean, I think in, in terms of the pillars of the, of the Earth trilogy, yeah, I mean, people love that. Um, but do you, I mean, your personal favorites, do they match the public taste? But they do pretty much. They pretty, I'm trying to think of one that, um, that I feel trying to think of one that I feel is really good, but the public public haven't really appreciated. But I can't think of one, Lee. I don't think that I don't. Um, uh, and one or two of my books that have sold slightly less than the others, I'm inclined to think it, that that's because it's not as good as the others. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I, yeah, I don't really feel that. I mean, I'm 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 proud as heck of the Pillars of the Earth. It, it was difficult to write. And as we've mentioned, there was some opposition to it. And um, in the end, people absolutely adored it. So I'm, you know, I'm very happy about that. And the other one that I'm really happy about is Eye of the Needle. But, you know, I, I wrote Eye of the Needle when I was 27. Yeah. Easter 1977, just before my 28th birthday. I had three weeks leave. I was working for a publisher. I had accumulated leave. I took three weeks off Easter. And, you know, I wrote most of Eye of the Needle in that three-week period. And um, uh, it, and, and it was, I, I finished it later, but it, I didn't change what I had written very much. And I knew when I was writing it that it was 
10 times as good as anything that I'd done before. I could tell. And my first wife, Mary, remembers me sitting at the typewriter as it was then and saying to her, this is really good. This is really good. It was like running downhill. It just, it just, the ideas just came nonstop. And I wrote very quickly and it just poured out of me and, and it was good. Um, so I'm, I'm very proud of that, but happily the world liked it as much as I did. Yeah, I, uh, and it was recommended to me uh, by, by my agent one time when he had an issue with my first manuscript that, uh, you know, was I managing the suspense properly? And he said, read Eye of the Needle, which I already have, actually. He said, read Eye of the Needle. That's the textbook on suspense, which, uh, but three weeks is pretty, that's fast. I mean, that's lightning speed compared to what you do now. So there uh, must yes. have been a passion or an energy stored up about it. It was extraordinary, yes. I mean, as you know, it now takes me three years to write a book, not three weeks. I, I wish I could still write as fast as I could write then. <laughs> have you noticed any uh, difference in response from, from readers generally? So I have over the years, because when you start out, you're a person who is writing books, and then you reach a certain level of household name or whatever. And subliminally in people's minds, you become an anonymous source, a bit like a corporation or something. And they will say things to you that indicate they no longer think of, that a person has written this book. I was once on holiday in Antigua, actually, where I know you go from time to time. And a woman recognized me and said she loved my new book. And so, you know, you do, oh, that's very nice. Thank you very much. And then she said, it was better than the last one. That was awful. <laughs> And she, and she said it with no inhibition at all, um, <laughs> as if she, you know, we were talking about the new Ford Escort of, or the old Ford Escort. <laughs> do you get that? I mean, because you are an institution now. I mean, do, are you perceived differently than the old Ken Follett author? There's, a, there's always a suspicion that the books are written by a team of people. And I get that suggestion now and again. Uh, a lot of people think that um, the research is done by a team of people, and that isn't true either. I do, I do all the research myself. I have, I have my first drafts checked by experts, but that's the only time I use experts. I don't ask them to do the actual research for me. And, um, uh, but, the, yeah, there's this sort of idea that... Um, uh, that it, it couldn't... I don't know. I mean, they even say, you know... Uh, I don't want to compare myself to Shakespeare, but they even say, you know, Shakespeare can't possibly have written all those plays, don't they? It's a, it's a strange. I did have an experience a bit like yours, but really early in my career. I was on a plane from New York to Los Angeles and somebody was reading Triple. And I said to him, how's the book? He said, oh, it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> and see, I've, since then, I've never approached a person who's reading one of my books because I'm afraid of getting that answer. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's an open ended risk doing that. I, a friend of mine, Harlan Coben, did that. Somebody was reading his book and he couldn't resist. He he nudged the guy and said, "Are you enjoying that?" And the, his seatmate said, "No, it's terrible, but it was all I could find in the airport." 
so displaying. Yeah, but then you know, not everybody. That is something you've got to um, you've got to deal with that. That nobody's going to like everything, and some people are going to hate what you do. And I guess you know, you worked in newspapers and so on, and so you had a very clear idea of an audience out there that was not. I mean, there's nothing more obstinate and ordinary than um, the public. And you have to deal with that. You just have to accept it. That, your, that remark just reminds me, do you remember what they said about Mickey Spillane when he died? Life magazine uh, said no, no, nobody liked his books except the public. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I would like that on my tombstone, to be honest, because, you know, who else do you want to like him? That's, uh... Yes, exactly. So going back to the world of the evening and the morning, there is, uh, there's a character in history around that time, uh, Queen Emma of Normandy, who, and that, that is the secret link between, uh, to Jack Reacher, because as I said, my, as you know, my wife is a huge enthusiast for the history of that period. And she came across Queen Emma, who is just begging to be in a book. I mean, she's just a, their most wonderful historical character. And so Jane decided she would try a novel about her. So she started writing a novel and gave up after two pages and um, said, what do you think? And, you know, what do you do in that situation? It really wasn't good. My wife's a historian. She's not a novelist. And so she said, would you rewrite it? And it was just two pages. And I had the most tremendous fun rewriting it. I put in soldiers and fights and they were spitting on the floor and all this kind of thing. And that was the moment at which I thought, yeah, you know what, I could do this. I could enjoy being a writer. And so in a, in a very real way, Queen Emma of Normandy is the mother of Jack Reacher in, oh, in a strange way. How interesting. Well, she's the, she's, to some extent, she's the inspiration for Ragnar in the evening and the morning, because because Emma of Normandy did some of the things that Ragnar did, and she also illustrates that although women were subordinate at this period of history, uh, individual women could be powerful. Emma of Normandy, as you know, came from Normandy, Ragnar comes from Normandy, to marry uh, an Anglo-Saxon, they both do that. Emma married the king, Ethelred, and when... And and then when then when he died, she married the next king. It was called Canute, who was a Viking. Um, and then the next king was her son, Edward the Confessor. So here was a woman who was absolutely at the centre of power uh, in in this nexus, northwest Europe, for a long period of time. And that, to me, is sufficient evidence that Ragnar could have done what she did and built her own power base in the west of England when she discovered that she married that she had married into uh, a family which um, wasn't quite what she'd expected right so the uh, looping back to what I asked you before whether you're willing to talk about what you're working on what are you working on what comes what comes next uh, well, I, I I would talk to you privately about it eagerly, but um, uh, it, it's um, I don't want to talk about it. Partly, as I said, because 
that my publishers would be very cross at, uh, at me distracting attention from the evening and the morning. And also there's a possibility that it, it could change. What I say about it now uh, could turn out not to be true. So, so um, uh, I, I, if you'll forgive me, I won't tell you what I'm working on now. You could have said it's essential to read the evening and the morning to understand the next book. And uh, the publishers would have liked that. <laughs> so do we think it's not essential? So maybe, maybe we're back to, uh, to World War II or something. But you are so comfortable in that medieval period. And I, I'm fascinated by authors who, who exhibit that characteristic. I've got a friend called Joseph Cannon who is absolutely brilliant at post-World War II stuff. You know, that period, the five years, say, after World War II. Okay. Which is sort of ignored to a certain extent in fiction. Um, the, you know, the drastic upheaval in, in Europe after yeah. it ended. He is so at home there, it's like he was born to do it. And, you know, you in the medieval period, it feels totally at home. Um, such a surprise, really, because it is uh, obscure, unknown. The state of historical education is such that you're, you're introducing people to something that they probably literally know nothing about, uh, which is a fantastic thing. It's, it's, it's very satisfying. Um, and I suppose what I'm doing is making people interested. I mean, I know what I'm doing is making people interested in something that they didn't previously think was interesting, because a lot of uh, I get a lot of mail saying, um, I wish I'd had this book to read in history lessons instead of the ones they gave me, because this makes history exciting, which it is. Um, uh, of course, that's a, that's a wish that can't really be, be fulfilled. You have to have the facts before you can write the novels, don't you? So somebody's got to write books that just tell you the facts and, and somebody's got to study those books. So it's kind of a, uh, it's a hopeless wish, but it's certainly in a story in which you identify with characters, it certainly makes history come alive in a way that nonfiction uh, very rarely manages. Yeah, but I think there's a really good case for, uh, you know, your book being read in history courses. Of course, yeah, there is historians that inform you and you write the fiction, but then you can loop it back to uh, why isn't that book read for uh, in high school for history or at university for history, because I know that it's conscientiously researched and therefore it's not misleading, but it is, it's making it exciting. It's creating a huge appetite and it has happened before. I mean, there are lots of stories I know of serious academics who were turned on in, in teenage years by fiction. Um, I think it would be a great idea. I, I wish schools were a little bit more imaginative about things like that. I met a guy once who um, was a stonemason, uh, young guy, and um, he said to me, um, I became a stonemason after reading The Pillars of the Earth because I thought it sounded so interesting. And he, he actually made a, a little roundel for me, which he carved himself and uh, gave it to me to thank me for writing the book, which I thought was enormously touching. Um, uh, uh, it's true that a lot of people get interested in the past because of uh, novels and TV shows about the past. I think that works very well. 
and that that's not a bad way round to be excited by a story and then then think I'd like to know more. Um, I like to read some non-fiction about this period because it's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's the example of Mary Breno, for instance, Alexander the Great, which are wonderful books, uh, but th there's something about them that will stimulate serious inquiry afterwards. Um, I think it would be the, you know, obviously I'm a fiction writer, so I'm going to say, yeah, we should have start with fiction and do non-fiction later. Um, I suppose it's inevitable, I would say that. Here's a question from the from the audience today is, uh, I'd be really interested in your take on it. You've written almost 40 books. How do you deal or work through writer's block? Do you even believe in it? Touch wood, it hasn't happened to me. Um, uh, but on the other hand, I never really find myself facing a blank page. I mean, I've, I've, I've got a, a system of working that I've developed over many years and it, and it never lets me down so far. Um, uh, so yeah, I don't really get it. I think it's partly because, you know, some of my friends talk about the muse. They, they talk about inspiration for their work as if there is something almost supernatural about it. And I don't, I don't take that approach. I don't feel that it's mysterious. I know that I have a vivid imagination and I have done since I was very small. And I was constantly, as a little boy, I was constantly, I was never myself. I was always a pirate or a, a cowboy or captain of a spaceship. Uh, I, I lived in my imagination. And when you, I think for, for people like that, and I'd be surprised if you're not a bit like that yourself, Lee. For people like that, uh, these, the, your imagination produces this stuff all the time. And um, it's it's not it doesn't seem like a mystery to you until somebody says, where do you get your ideas? And you think, yeah. oh, geez, they just come all the time. They uh, do. Picking the right one is, of course, a, a challenge. Absolutely. Or picking the right two or three, because other people think a novel is one idea, whereas it's always the conflict between two or three ideas woven together in, in certain ways. But yeah, I mean, I was exactly the same. I make Walter Mitty look completely normal. Uh, <laughs> you know, even as an older, you know, even now, you know, I'm never driving to the store. I'm always racing through the dark to Checkpoint Charlie or something like that, or piloting a Spitfire or something. It's, uh, it's a habitual thing. And it, it was so present always in my life that it was actually quite a surprise. I suddenly realized, wait a minute, all you got to do is write this stuff down. Uh, it's already happening in my head. So I think we've got time for a couple more questions. And there was a good one earlier that said, um, was there a book that, that first motivated you to write? Did you read one that was just so appealing that you thought, yeah, I've got to do this or what? No, it didn't happen like that for me. Um, I did when I was 12 years old. I read uh, Live and Let Die by Ian Fleming, James Bond story. Um, and when I started, uh, it, it, that, that wasn't what made me write. But when I started to write novels, which is 10 years later, when I was in my early 20s, um, I thought and, and began to think about 
um, what am I trying to do and what do people want? You know, that person going around the bookshop, looking at the covers and turning some of the books over and reading the back and then opening some of the books. What is that person hoping for? She's hoping for, for a wonderful experience, that person who's shopping for a book. And, um, uh, you know, she's not hoping for something ordinary. She's hoping for something that will transport her. And I thought a lot about that. And when I started writing, I thought about how I had felt about those James Bond stories when I was uh, a teenager. And in particular, I remembered the sheer joy of having a new James Bond story in my hands to read. I, ne I could never afford to buy them, of course, nor could my parents. I borrowed them from the public library. Uh, but that didn't matter. You know, I would every, every time, I, every week I would look for James Bond stories and every now and again, there'd be a new one. Uh, and I would take it home just in sheer delight. And I, I then, 10 years later, I thought, this is what I want my readers to think. As, as I'm sitting and writing and thinking to myself, is this any good? Then I say, well, what do I want it to be? And the answer is, I want it to be something that somebody holds and says, oh, my God, I'm so lucky I've got another one of these to read. Uh, and so really, I mean, it, it, you know, that, that was kind of a, the James Bond books are important to me for that reason, because they remind me of how much sheer delight people can get from novels. I love that answer. I mean, word for word, sheer joy of uh, getting, I mean, it was so magical going to that library. And I remember our library like it was yesterday. It was a small, dusty it was a temporary facility because of bomb damage after World War II. Temporary facility. It smelled warm and dusty. And the delight in walking in to the section that you knew where your books were and seeing one that you wanted, hadn't got before. The, <clears throat> exactly that. Sheer joy, sheer delight. And we are way over running our time. I know we could probably talk all all day but we got to wrap it up and so i it's a great place to wrap it up the sheer delight of uh this book which is not on the end of the trilogy it's at the beginning of the trilogy it's it's such a great setup and so thank you very much ken for joining us and congratulations on the book it's magnificent and to those watching Buy it from your local bookstore, if possible. If not, buy it online uh, and enjoy it. And thank you very much for hanging out with us at the Commonwealth Club. Check it out online, Commonwealth. Help out if you can, donate if you can, participate if you can. It has been such a pleasure. Thanks, Ken. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.